Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephratha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was uns- his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, last week, we talked about the Syrophoenician woman and why Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, had just cause to call her a dog based upon the Syrophoenician oppression of the Jews and especially Jewish farmers and why Yeshua was telling her that he shouldn't be expected to take from Jewish children to give to her child the way that um, the Syrophoenicians were effectively taking from the Jewish children in order to feed their own. It was a confrontation of a hard truth. No one likes to hear that they are members of an oppressive society, but it's crucial. And it's a hard text to teach because Yeshua doesn't like to stay in the box we made for him. But it's a good message for those of us who wonder why uh, in the third world they're receiving amazing miracles and, and we largely aren't. Same exact reason, actually. We're getting crumbs here in the West, and rightly so. But this week, we will have a healing without all the drama. Well, there's drama, but we might not notice it without some help. Hi, I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture, with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years worth of blog at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids, You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com and I also have, I guess by the time that this airs, for three months now, (laughs) or maybe just two, um, a new radio show for kids called Context for Kids. And and you can find that at contextforkids.com, all the information about downloads and and all that stuff. And I teach this stuff to kids, but in an entirely different way because they're different. Now, all scripture this week comes courtesy of the English Standard Version, the ESV. 
but uh, you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. And I will always give you my sources, all right? If, if I got it from somewhere, it means you can get it from somewhere. I don't make this stuff up, hopefully. I'm not making anything up. Uh, sometimes, you know, a paradigm slips in or something that uh, we've just been taught so much that we don't think about it. And whoop, there it is in a teaching. And um, sometimes we need that stuff challenged. That's why I read so many commentaries. It makes me question what I think I know. Well, and also I just enjoy reading commentaries. Okay, so we're we're in chapter 7. Let's start in verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. So first of all, we've got some bizarre geography here. Yeshua returns, but he takes the long way around. Tyre is north of Israel and, you know, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in uh, modern-day Lebanon. And, and if you ever want to study a really cool bit of history, read up on Alexander the Great's Siege of Tyre. Um, and so Tyre was where the action was last week with the Syrophoenician woman. But it says that he, he left the region of Tyre and went to Sidon from there, which is 25 miles north along the coast. And then presumably he wanders his way along roads southeast to end up on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee in the Decapolis. This is a huge trip. Now, we haven't discussed the Decapolis before, so let's do it now. Uh, he's been on the eastern side before of the Sea of Galilee. That's where he famously met the man with the legion of demons um, and sending them into the pigs. When he left, the man begged to go to, with him, but Yeshua told him, and he left him behind and told him to declare what God had done for him. And so let's review that real quick here from Mark 5, starting in verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how much mercy he had on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. So... What was the result? He's coming back now, so we're going to find out part two. After we talk very briefly about the Decapolis. So Decapolis means ten cities in Greek. These were um, city-states, sort of like um, ancient uh, Athens and Sparta in ancient Greece. This means they functioned almost as their own countries within a country, but they were still dependent on the Roman Empire. And there's a lot that we don't know about the Decapolis, but we do know that Pompey granted them uh, autonomy in 63 before the Calman era, which meant that they could rule themselves, but still owed, owed loyalty and taxes to Rome. You can't, can't forget the taxes. You never get away from the taxes. Well, 
Some, some do, but rarely. But the cities were similar in that they were fully realized Hellenistic cities east, except for one, of the Sea of Galilee and were predominantly Gentile in population. Now, Pliny lists them in his Natural History, which I lazily lifted from a list in Wikipedia because I just didn't feel like writing it all down. So um, first we have Gerasa um, in Jordan. Scythopolis, I don't know how to pronounce that. It's probably Scythopolis, like the, the Scythians. Yeah. Um, which is now called, which is in the Bible's called Beit Shean in Israel. And this is the only city west of the Jordan River. And it was famous for being where King Saul's headless body was hung on the city wall by the Philistines. Uh, Hippos on the Golan Heights. Uh, that's on the uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee. Gadara in Jordan. This is the region where uh, the Legion incident occurred. Pella in Jordan. Philadelphia, which is modern-day Amman, uh, the capital of Jordan. Capitolius in Jordan. Kanatha in Syria. Rafana in Jordan. And Damascus, uh, which is very famous. Uh, it's the modern, it's the capital of modern Syria. It, it's believed to be the oldest inhabited city on the face of the earth, continuously inhabited city on the face of the earth. So if you pull out a map of the Middle East and look at Syria down to Jordan, that tells you the location of eight of these cities, <coughs> excuse me, uh, which were most, mostly in modern day Jordan. Hippos is on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and is on the Golan Heights. And uh, there were many Jews living in these cities, but they would not have been in the majority as, you know, they were in, in, in Galilee. All right. Where, where Jews were the majority. Now, what Mark doesn't tell us is where within the Decapolis region Yeshua ended up. But as the man who was delivered from Legion was witnessing in the region, and as this would have been big news, I'm certain that once he showed up anywhere, there would be quite a stir. Unlike modern atheists and uh, many modern believers who turn their noses up at the miraculous, man, this was right up their alley. They believed in gods and demons and angels and signs and omens and wonders and oracles and miracles. But they didn't generally see anything that was genuinely miraculous right before their eyes. For these guys, there was no separation in the ancient world between, you know, the spiritual, spiritual and physical realities. Everything in the physical was an extension of what was going on in the spiritual, and the Jews believed no differently. Ancient people saw behind the scenes, you know, behind the scenes spiritual battles playing out in the events that they could see on earth. Science as we know it today was barely um, beginning to function. All right. Although their engineering and mathematical knowledge was already formidable, but engineering and math is different than science. Believe me, I've taken classes in all three. They're all different. They're, they're related. They're, they're interrelated, but they're all different. Um, but
but they still saw natural phenomena as controlled by individual deities and events as being caused and influenced by demons who were forces of chaos, you know, sometimes doing good and sometimes doing evil. In their eyes, nothing just happened. It was all foreordained or brought on by blessings or curses that were either sent, you know, at you because you were inherently worthy, favored by the gods, you know, or, or victim of your own evil deeds or someone else's envy. If you've heard about evil eye. Ophthalmal. <laughs> it's like that word always just makes me. Yeah. Okay. One of many words that makes me do that. Now, they also believed in magic and by this time mostly hated it. It was a chaotic, probably always hated it. It was a chaotic element in society and therefore feared. Human sacrifice had long since been banned by the Roman Empire, like a hundred years before this, and they weren't playing either. But, okay, let's just wrap this up and say that their outlook was very different from ours and in walks a miracle worker powerful enough to deliver a man from a ton of demons and who was responsible for the death of a ton of pigs that would have fed their gods, so evidently more powerful than their gods because he was still up and walking around. One more thing. Why did Yeshua take the long way around instead of heading south east from, from Tyre, just, you know, going that way? It would have been a lot easier. This was not a quick trip north and around. As I mentioned last week, part of Yeshua's MO was to stick around long enough to preach the gospel of the kingdom and then leave after a controversy arose to go elsewhere. I was reading Ben Witherington yesterday, and I like what he said. He said, um, engage and retreat. Okay. It was, it was Yeshua's way to engage and then retreat. The, um, the Pharisees and the scribes from Jerusalem are turning up the heat and it's evident, you know, especially after the Beelzebul controversy and their ignoring of the miracles happening around them to nitpick him for not ritually washing his hands. Um, and his disciples were the only ones accused of this in Mark, but Luke claims that Yeshua didn't do it either. Now it's evident that nothing will bring them around and they are determined to be a hindrance and a stumbling block. There's no use in preaching where they've marshaled their forces and it's better to just move on to the next town. Also, Herod has just killed John the Baptist and so there is danger on that front as well. So he withdraws to Gentile territory to regroup and rest, you know, perhaps, or, or to allow things to cool down a bit. Yeshua knows he's headed for the cross, but he's no rash fool. He knows it cannot happen yet, and certainly not in the Galilee. Again, no mention of his disciples, just like last week, but they will be mentioned in the next account of the feeding of the 4,000. Verse 32, And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. Now, this healing story is only found in Mark. We assume that these... People have brought the man because they heard of his previous miracle. I do prefer the translation of this here in the ESV to other versions that say he's mute. That's not what the word um, 
Mogilalos uh, means. He, he's deaf, yes, but his tongue works. Now, the cool thing, it, it, but it's restrained somehow. There's, there's something wrong with it. Now, the cool thing here is that they're begging Yeshua to lay hands on him, which requires him to stretch out his arm. Before I get to that, I want to remind you of the arm of the Lord motif in Isaiah and the writers of 1Q ISA, the great Isaiah scroll found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, they equate this arm of the Lord with the Messiah. Now, whenever Yahweh would talk about stretching out his arms, arm, the, um, arm singular, the authors labeled that as the, that arm of the Lord is Messiah. I have a 17 part series on Deutero Isaiah where I talk about that at length. But let's look at Isaiah 35 verses 1 through 6 real quick. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. They shall see it. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble needs feeble knees say to those who have an anxious heart be strong fear not behold your god will come with a vengeance with the recompense of god he will come and save you then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert we keep seeing what scholars call self-manifesting miracles, which is what they call any event where Yeshua does something that only God can do in scripture or is something that is a fulfillment of prophecy or God acting direct of, of God acting directly on behalf of his people. If you remember, healing the leper, calming the storm, commanding demons and teaching on his own authority and not appealing to a higher power, walking on water, multiplying bread and fishes, and not succumbing to the temptation of the devil, something no human has ever perfectly accomplished, certainly not me. Now here, of course, not even yesterday <laughs> I do that. Um, here, of course, you know, we will fulfill the parts of this prophecy dealing with being unable to hear and speak. But in Mark 8 and 10, he will heal the blind as well. Matthew, Luke, and John all speak of his healing of the lame. And of course, when he made the paralyzed man walk in Mark chapter 3, that obviously counts. Any one of these would be miraculous, but all four is a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 35 in what to expect when God personally visits his people to save them. These are all clues. Not heavy-handed as they would be if they were written into a fictional account or an ancient mythology, which were never subtle as they were created to explain things very simply with no great deeper meanings attached, which, you know, weren't really readily obvious, as that would have completely defeated their purpose. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, document 4Q521, a.k.a. the Redemption and Resurrection Scroll, 
we see the expectation of the healing Messiah. And this is from uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, a new translation by um, Wise et al. It's from Fragment 2 plus Fragment 4, Column 2. The heavens and the earth will listen to his Messiah, and all which is in them shall not turn away from the commandments of the holy ones. Strengthen yourselves. O oh, you who seek the Lord in his service, will you not find the Lord in this? All who, all those who hope in their heart. For the Lord seeks the pious and calls the righteous by name. Over the humble his spirit hovers, and he renews the faithful in his strength. For he will honor the pious on the throne of the eternal kingdom, setting prisoners free, opening the eyes of the blind, raising up those who are bowed down, and forever um, something, I something, shall hold fast to the hopeful and pious. Something, something, something will not be delayed. Something. And the Lord shall do glorious things which have not been done, just as he said. For he shall heal the critically wounded. He shall revive the dead. He will send good news to the afflicted. He shall something the something. He shall lead the something and the hungry he shall enrich wow after last week with the syrophoenician woman we're almost cringing wondering you know if we're going to have a, a repeat performance of this scathing rebuke we're still in gentile territory but it does not happen the decapolis is entirely different from tyre and the syrophoenicians the Greco-Roman Hellenists are decadent and pagans, but they aren't guilty of anything particular, you know, recently against the Jews needing to be addressed. Um, they aren't oppressors, you know, in other words, you know, infringing on Jewish survival, to put it in another way. All right. And, and, and I forgot to, ju I just skipped by the Dead Sea Scrolls, that, that commentary. Of course, it's just commentary. It's their opinions, but... Yeshua did all those things. It's just amazing. Anyway, okay, verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. This isn't the first time that Yeshua has taken something, someone aside privately, not wishing to perform for a large crowd. He also did this in the episode with raising Jairus's daughter. Um, and the changing of the wine, uh, the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. An audience is sometimes positive and sometimes negative. In any event, this wasn't a public miracle. And here we get to the importance of the hand washing controversy again. If one could contract the sort of defilement from just coming in contact with this or that in the marketplace in Galilee, just think of the uncleanness we are about to see here with Yeshua touching twice. This man who is almost certainly a Gentile. And I think this was a Gentile because of the privacy demanded. Like I said last week, there is no preaching going on here. It's not the time for Gentiles to be brought into the kingdom yet. Only the Jews would understand the gospel message at this point. For the Gentiles, this is all too easily credited to paganism. This was mercy, yes, but if the disciples were with him, then this was a sign for them as well. It was a teaching moment <laughs> to follow him, 
they are going to have to go to the Gentiles doing these same works. But is he presenting himself to the Gentiles as the Yahweh warrior, as the Messiah? No, they would not understand. And before the cross and the new creation, it would be pointless to preach. There's a time and a season for every purpose under heaven. And this ain't it. Um, okay. <laughs> this is, fortunately, I just noticed that we only have 15 seconds left before the half here. Um, we're going to talk about these strange gestures that he's making and, and the scholarly controversy, because, you know, nobody knows exactly why he's doing it, but there are some fun reasons thinking about it. I'll be right back. I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to the second half of this week's Character in Context. We're in Mark Part 34, Ephratha. Yeah. And we've been talking about a lot of stuff, but right now we're going to review really quick the verse that we're going to discuss now. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ears after spitting, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And like I just briefly mentioned before the break, the gestures here are a bit confusing and, and very much debated by scholars. Now, I certainly don't see it as ritualistic, which is undoubtedly how the people, the pagans would have seen it. It was probably for me why he took him aside. But I see it as an attempt to communicate with this man, you know, what Yeshua is about to do. All, you know, after all, he can't hear. An actual sign language hasn't been invented yet. Putting his fingers in the man's ears will show intent to heal and allow the man to fully operate in faith and touching his tongue would have the same effect if I'm right, which is incredibly debatable. Certainly, Yeshua didn't need to do either of those things, but he, he does seem to really prefer giving people the opportunity to act out in faith and belief Instead of simply acting out on its own end. And one thing I didn't even think of when I wrote the script is that within Judaism, there was this idea that people who were disabled were often unable to make informed decisions. Um, they were, um, yeah. And so by Yeshua involving this man who is deaf and has a speech impediment in the process, he's really giving dignity to this person. Man, I didn't even think of that before. Ooh, I like that. Now, Yeshua gives dignity wherever possible and appropriate. He knows what each person needs to hear um, and experience rather than what they might want to hear and experience. Now, before I move on, I want to bring up the incident between Moses and Yahweh at the burning bush in Exodus 4, verses 10 through 11. Um, Moses, of course, is history's most famous example of a speech impediment, um, or at least that is how slow speech and tongue is traditionally interpreted. And there are a lot of really cool people in the world who have speech impediments. James Earl Jones, 
And I actually have the Bible on CD recorded in his voice, which I love. Anyway, um, verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, like in the last five minutes, nothing's changed, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So again, we're about to see a self-manifesting event here. Yahweh isn't claiming that only he can make men mute, deaf, seeing, or blind. I mean, obviously that's not what the verse means, even though that's the plain reading. Um, all those things can be inflicted through injury or by nature of birth defects or whatever. Instead, Yahweh's claiming sovereignty over tongue, ears, and eyes. Moses is being challenged to faith in this area of weakness and likely embarrassment. Okay, it's, I mean, could you imagine growing up in, in a powerful royal court with a speech impediment? Of course, you know, he, Moses failed abysmally. And Aaron had to be called in to be the voice of Yahweh instead. No one can be perfect all the time except Yeshua. All right, verse 34. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, which means be open. He sighed. And it's an interesting translation because the word translates, translated side is danazo. And it appears five other times in scriptures in the NT and 21 times in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And it's always translated as groaning or grumbling elsewhere, or almost always. And, and we're going to see a variant of it in chapter eight, which we will hop to at the end here, if I remember. It's always like exasperation or anguish or that sort of thing. Like in Romans 8.28, when all creation is groaning, as are we, while waiting for the redemption. So this is like a pained expression. So why here? Why is Yeshua looking up and making a pained expression before he heals the guy? You'll have to wait a bit for my opinion on that. But, you know, he speaks in Aramaic the word ephatha, which means be open. So this is a command stemming from authority and not sorcery. Um, these words, when they're given, are very important. Like talitha, kumi, um, you know, just they are not incantations or mumbo jumbo. They are simply commands spoken with absolute authority. Uh, verse 35, and his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. So this was clearly not a case of demonic possession. This was a physical infirmity and the language makes that clear. His ears were opened. We see similar phraseology when one of the matriarchs is barren and cannot have children, which, you know, was almost all of them. Well, it's half of them. Leah and Bilha and Zilpah didn't have problems and you know, the three others did. His tongue also was released, you know, not to speak for the first time, but to speak plainly. As was mentioned before, this is a speech difficulty, not muteness. 
I can see the commercial for now. Okay, man from the Decapolis, you just got your ears open and your voice. What are you going to do? Um, Disneyland was not an option. But, um, verse 36, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Of course, it isn't just the guy who knows. His buddies slash family who brought him, they knew it too. And he tells them, like, you know, with the lepers in chapter one and the parents of, you know, in the story of Jairus's daughter in chapter five, for the love of Pete, don't tell anybody about this. But like the situation with the leper, they're like on the talk show circuit telling absolutely, absolutely everyone. Isn't it funny that Yeshua tells the storm, be muzzled, and it immediately calms down. He wants to walk on water, and I, I don't know how that works. If he made it solid under him, or what, or it just held him up because, you know, it was supposed to. Um, he tells demons to leave, and they do. He wants... Um, He, he multiplies, uh, he wants to multiply loaves and, um, fishes, and there are leftovers after feeding 5,000 men plus women and kids. But you tell people, reasoning, thinking grown-ups, and no, they don't listen. And, and don't think we'd necessarily be any better. I mean, boy, howdy, we're just, you know, we're a piece of work we are. And, and they aren't just talking about it. <laughs> They must have started shouting immediately because the verse clearly shows he was trying to shush them, but they were all the more determined to blab. Maybe they thought he just couldn't possibly be serious or he was just humble and they were going to help him out. <laughs> I think he was trying to avoid being mobbed, which, as you know, it isn't likely to be the first time. It is ironic, however, that he was given a voice and then immediately told to shut up. <laughs> but the irony there is nothing compared to what happens next. Verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. I know you're saying, What's ironic about that? I'd be dazzled too, and they're right. But the irony is that the Gentiles are praising him as doing all things well when the Pharisees and scribes from Jerusalem can't seem to give him credit for anything, no matter what he does, and have attributed his works to being in league with the prince of demons, Beelzebul. Which is just so special, okay? Now, of course, the ordinary people react just as these Gentiles do, amazed at his works and gossiping about his identity. I tell you, I am a big fan of and believer in education, but it, you know, it, it won't get you any closer to God than an illiterate person with superior faith who's majoring on the minor, majors instead of majoring in the minors. Of course, that isn't why the people were following him, and scripture makes it clear they loved the goodies and abandoned him at the cross, even though everyone was in town and likely would have done you know, we, we we likely would have done the same thing, okay? The heathen Greeks here are responding positively to the new exodus so far, 
problem is that this is not the time and so they have not heard the message of the kingdom nor would it make sense until after the resurrection because they have no context for it nothing like this has ever been preached before despite atheist uh, zeitgeist propaganda that is so easily debunked that you can do it through wikipedia which i don't recommend in general because anyone can edit that but the coastlands are waiting for his law, as we see in Isaiah 42, 4 and Isaiah 60, verse 9. But the gospel is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And the reason why is because only the Jews had the, um, the context to understand it and to go out proclaiming him afterwards would make no sense to the Gentiles. Um, now, that's why I think Yeshua was groaning. Now, some scholars believe that he's praying in the spirit. Could be right. Um, others believe that he is sighing sadly over the man's condition. There are a number of theories because um, the text doesn't say. And there aren't supplemental texts to pull from. You know, um, this account is only in Mark. In the second servant song, um, we see this. This is in Isaiah um, 49. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. It is Yahweh's will, mercy, and and love longing for the heathen nations to be delivered from their idolatry and their bondage to oppressive human regimes. I believe that when Yeshua is groaning, it's because he longs to save them and save them now, but he knows the time is still far off. If you've ever visited an orf a foreign orphanage full of children, then you know what I'm talking about. You can't help them all, and you can't even help any of them right now. You have to jump through hoops and hope and wait, and yet your heart is full of anguish and love and hope. The children are far off and under the authority of a government that is barely caring for them in some situations and, and even making money off the adoptions. But kidnapping the child would be an exercise in futility. They're, they're trapped, and, and so are you. Yeshua was trapped, so to speak, by his destiny. He couldn't even preach the message of the kingdom to these people because there was nothing to give them except miracles. And, and miracles are nice, but when you're suffering under oppressive governments, the miracles are not really what you need the most. Like the kids in the orphanage, you need adoption and freedom. To put it another way, any parent of a wayward child knows the heartache of watching a child who needs salvation but they, for whatever reason, can't understand the message yet. You groan, waiting, praying, doing a bit here and there in hopes of helping, but they're trapped by a force that you can't budge. I believe that's what Yeshua experienced in the Decapolis. But beyond that, let's talk about the spiritual problem of idolatry that these Greco-Romans suffered under. Now, if you read my last book, Image-Bearing Idolatry and the New Creation, then you probably already know what I'm going to say. Idolatry, according to scripture, includes 
it, it induces, excuse me, spiritual blindness, deafness, muteness, lameness, etc. Let's look at Psalm 115, verses 2 through 8. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. This is the important part. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Now, beginning in Genesis 3, we see this theme of becoming like whatever it is that we personally worship. When um, Adam and Eve transferred their trust from Yahweh to the serpent and their allegiance, okay, they became quite crafty in their responses, didn't they? started making excuses, started not telling the whole truth. At Sinai, after the incident with the golden calf, Yahweh and Moses both began describing Israel in terms of being like stubborn cattle. All right, because worship is about more than bowing down to something, okay? It's about the actual transference of loyalties, um, what did Moses say? Choose this day who you will serve. Oh, man, that's bad grammar. <laughs> I hope it doesn't. I just, I, I didn't cut and paste that from the Bible. I just quit. It's like, yeah, I'm going to change that here. Yeah, I don't want that. All right. Um, and, and so the nations, as represented by this deaf and speech impaired man, are spiritually impaired. They have eyes but cannot see, and ears but cannot hear, etc., etc. They can't see the truth of God and will not for at least another 10 years. Um, considering the life expectancy in those days, you know, good odds were that Yeshua was walking past a lot of people who would be dead long before the message got to them. He's like those prospective adoptive parents seeing kids in need of so much and yet unable to do anything about it except keep pushing forward with the paperwork and praying. His ministry has to run his course. He can't skip anything. He can't rush it along. The entire world depends on it. Not just these poor lost souls trapped in sin and idolatry. So, um, sorry, I get emotional about that. I'm going to jump ahead just a bit so I can make this even more depressing and heartbreaking. We're going to skip the feeding of the 4,000 and head straight for chapter 8, verses 11 through 13. Of course, next week we will do the feeding of the 4,000. This is, uh, starting, is in chapter 8, starting in verse 11. Then the Pharisees came and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, 
Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Have you ever been in a debate with somebody who, who presents emotional claims, and when you counter with facts, they remain unconvinced and just keep rehashing their emotional claims? It seriously has to be um, one of the most frustrating things on earth. I was once talking to someone about Easter, and I keep Passover and first fruits, FYI, so don't, you know, get panicky here. And, um, and first fruits, um, for those of you who, who celebrate Easter, is on that Sunday, okay? It's on Easter Sunday. It's, um, it's the day Yeshua resurrected according to the Hebrew calendar in Leviticus 23. Um, and they were telling me all about Ishtar worship. But the problem was that their information was all wrong. It came from junk books that either made stuff up out of nowhere or passed on stuff from earlier junk books. And a lot of them, what they do is they take the stuff from earlier books and they enhance it. So, you know, they, they make it worse than it was because they just... It's the problem with the fruit of the poisonous tree. It, it just, it gets worse and worse. It doesn't get better and better. You know, I actually own a lot of scholarly materials on Ishtar, including transcripts of all her mythologies, archaeological reports of the unearthing of her temple in Nineveh, translation of the cuneiform tablets found in the temple, in that temple, um, reports from writers during that time when she was worshipped. I mean, we know a lot about Ishtar. You know, and it's a long story, but I was studying the reference to the Queen of Heaven in Ezekiel, which was either Asherah, um, Canaanite mother goddess, or Ishtar. Um, my money's on Ishtar because of the time period and the Babylonian influence being greater on in that time than the Canaanite, um, which had been waning for a long time, but I can't be 100% sure. And they both worshipped in, in ancient Israel. Um, I know her priests were cross-dressers. I know that there were no virgins in her cult because she was the patron goddess of war and prostitutes, not really virgin territory. I know she wasn't a mother goddess because I've read all of her mythologies and she never really had kids, just a lot of human and animal husbands that she went through so quickly and scandalously that it would make Jerry Springer blush and say, okay, enough, you know. I know her priests weren't impregnating virgins on Ishtar Sunday because there was no such thing as Ishtar Sunday. Plus, Sunday didn't even exist at that point or in that part of the world, all right? Plus, her her priests weren't really those kind of guys, okay? And the Babylons didn't really practice human sacrifice. And, you know, that I've ever seen evidence of outside of the junk books and Googled pages written by who knows who and YouTube videos who never never quote actual scholars. They usually don't quote anything at all. They just make claims. Um, I know that they made unleavened bread to offer on her altar. So I have all these facts about Ishtar and Tammuz. Hard facts from archaeology and their mythology that we have from ancient documents. So I counter with the facts and tell her that there is zero evidence for what she's saying. And she counters with, it's obvious. And I say there's a big difference between it's I believe this and it's obvious. You know, obvious requires facts. 
indisputable evidence and not just suspicions based on scare stories. I mean, what if somebody thinks it's obvious you're cheating on your spouse and you aren't? Do they get to say that just because it's obvious to them? You know, in the end, she told me that it might be true and the evidence hasn't been discovered yet, so she will keep teaching it. I asked her if she would, you know, want me to accuse her of adultery based on no evidence and solely on my suspicions and what seems obvious to me. Probably not the best response. And as I um, recall, I got blocked. Um, but, you know, <laughs> anyway, here, um, Yeshua's working all these miracles and doing great things and preaching the gospel. And the Pharisees come to argue with him and say, show us a sign. Dude! He does nothing but give you signs all day, every day, if you're interested in the evidence. They weren't interested in the evidence. A lot of people aren't interested in the evidence. They made up their mind. They had an agenda. They had things they wanted to believe and felt they had to believe. And they would disregard any signs or attribute them to, attribute them to Beelzebul again anyway. So Yeshua responds by sighing deeply in his spirit. And it's a variation on that word again that means groaning. Anastanazo. And, and who can blame him, right? And, you know, I, I just the other day it just occurred to me, it's kind of like, you know, the sign? The sign in that? You know, the Pharisees gave the sign. They gave the sign that they were... What was it? Isaiah 6. They were determined to be blind and they were determined to be deaf and they were determined not to hear. And we can't do anything about that when people are like that. See you next week. Mm -hmm.